Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. All right, I'm going to go back for a couple of weeks, this week and next week. I want to go back to a series I started before Easter and before Stefan did those awesome uh, messages uh, talking about, you know, the, 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 uh, your, our identity in Christ and growing in our identity in Christ. And uh, so before that, I, we had, uh, had uh, spent a couple of weeks on this series called The God I Wish You Knew. And many people, and again, I, 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 as I said in the first message, I stole that title. Another church preached a message series by that title. I don't know what all the messages are that they preach in the series, but I just loved it so much I stole it. Um, but the God I wish you knew, um, so many of us, not, not just people outside the church, but inside the church, so many of us even, have many misconceptions about God. And we feel like he is, we feel like he cares about certain things, you know, when I'm praying and fasting and evangelizing, then he cares about what I'm doing, but about a family vacation or, or, you know, whether I buy a new van or not, or different things. that We don't feel like he loves the everyday stuff of our lives. We often feel, we wouldn't say that, but we feel like he's distant and he's uncaring in many ways. And, and that we have to work a, up a kind of a spirituality for him. And sometimes we even feel like he's weak and can't deliver us from things. And so the first two weeks we, in this series, what we're doing is just looking at the characteristics of God and praying that God will take these truths from the logical side of our brain and put it into our hearts so we can feel these truths. Um, but in the first couple of weeks, we talked about God is our deliverer. And we also talked about the fact that God is faithful. And today, and so, and so in those first couple of weeks, we got this sense of, of God's grandness, his power and his love for us to deliver us, to watch over us, to always be there for us. Um, today, I want to switch to the other end of the spectrum. This same God who is massive and infinitely powerful and all-knowing and above all things and our deliverer and all these things, this same God that is all of that infinite, powerful, amazing stuff is also humble and gentle and lowly of heart. You say, what? Yeah, this same God that is awesome, that is infinitely powerful, that is all-knowing, that is holy, that is majestic, that is awesome, is also gentle and lowly and humble of heart. And it almost sounds blasphemous. It almost sounds blasphemous, except that the Scripture tells us this about him. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus, God in the flesh, said this to us. He invites us. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this just should blow us away. The God who parted the Red Sea, who created the universe with a word. I mean, just the number of miracles in the Old Testament, who judges sin who overcomes the evil one, all these awesome, powerful, incredible, amazing, he's, you know, he, he's glorious and majestic. He comes to earth in the flesh and he invites us to come to him and he says, and I'm gentle and lowly of heart. Like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You look at any of the man-made religions of the world where people have invented gods and they've made false gods. No human being has ever invented a god like this, like the real one. Many of the gods that have been made in the man-made religions are powerful because we human beings, we want that in our God for sure. 
And so many of the, the, the false religions out there, their gods certainly are powerful. But one thing that the false man-made gods are not is gentle and lowly of heart. And yet the God who truly does exist is both powerful and majestic and holy and gentle and lowly of heart. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean in terms of our heart and how he behaves towards us? What does that even mean in practicality when Jesus says the God of this universe is gentle and lowly of heart? I mean, it's hard. Even most of us human, human beings, we're not gentle and lowly, lowly of heart. Never mind, we're not holy and majestic and all-powerful. If anybody should be gentle and lowly of heart, it should be us, and we're not. But he is. So what does that mean in practicality? And So I want to look at a story today. John chapter 4, it's a famous, famous story. Uh, it's a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is God in the flesh. And we're going to see this God who is all-powerful and holy and majestic in the flesh, sitting down at a well with the Samaritan woman. And we're going to see four things, four things. Our God is gentle and lowly of heart. I'm going to show you practically what that looks like. And so we start in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Baptist. Um, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And, and so here we actually see the first example. Uh, this, ver these, this couple of verses here, I've often thought about this over the years. This is the first example we have of the God of the universe is gentle and lowly of heart. Okay? So he hears that the Pharisees are comparing his ministry to John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist is his cousin. And the Pharisees are hearing that Jesus' ministry is bigger. And of course, you would think, well, of course, he's Jesus. He's God. It should be bigger. Like, how should Jesus respond to that? He should just say, yes, my ministry is bigger because I'm better. And that would be 100% true. His ministry should be bigger because he is better. He's God, okay? Jesus could just respond that way. Matter of fact, and tell the Pharisees, come worship me now already, you idiots. Forget about John, okay? His time came. I'm glad for his service. You know, Jesus, if Jesus didn't want the Pharisees comparing him and John, he could have gone and talked to John and said, you know, John, I mean, your time's basically up, buddy. Your head's going to be chopped off in the next six months or so by Herod. I'm here now. You announced the way. Thank you. I'm going to carry on now. He doesn't do any of that. I mean, this is, this is actually the most shocking thing. He's God. It actually is all about him. He came to earth, and it is all about him. The Pharisees start comparing his ministry to John the Baptist, and they're comparing it unfavorably for John the Baptist. And what does God do? He quietly leaves. I mean, it is stunning. He doesn't want, it is all about him. He is the Messiah, and yet he doesn't want them gossiping and putting John the Baptist down. And so he doesn't make a stink. He doesn't stand up for himself. He doesn't make John the Baptist leave. He could do all of that stuff very reasonably, and it would be fine. But he packs up his bags and leaves. The tender care for John the Baptist here. And for what people think about his cousin John the Baptist is to me mind-blowing when you consider who he is. This is gentle and lowly of heart. He, creates, he created John the Baptist. 
And yet he cares about John the Baptist. He doesn't ram his will over him. He actually cares what people think about him. And he just quietly leaves. It should probably convict a few of us. Maybe 100% of us certainly convicts me. If Jesus acts like that towards John the Baptist, if he's that tender in his treatment of John the Baptist, how many of us are fighting for our own way? And Jesus quietly leaves. Amazing. Well, we keep going here, verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. By the way, as we're talking about this, again, some of these are truths you might know logically. Oh, yeah, I get he's gentle and lowly of heart. Let it sink in today. When you go to prayer, this Jesus who is that tender towards John the Baptist, that's who you're praying to. That's who you're praying to. This morning, when you got up and you spent time with the Lord before coming to church, Sometimes we go, to, we, we go to the Lord and we just feel so condemned and we feel distant and we feel he's down on us. This is the Jesus you're going to. Tender towards you. He, care, he really cares about you. He cares what people think about you and what they're saying about you. And he loves you. He's tender. Gentle and lowly of heart. Anyway, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's actually an interesting statement there. He didn't technically have to in the sense of have to, have to. Uh, many Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would go around, which was a long, long, long walk. Um, but Jesus had to in the sense that it was the shortest way and he's not scared of Samaritans. So he had to go through Samaria. It only makes sense to go the, the shortest way. So he came to a town of Samaria called uh, Sychar. And, and just keep that in your mind. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And, and there's some dispute here. The sixth hour, is, John, is the Apostle John using Jewish time or is he using Roman time? Uh, Roman time would have counted the sixth hour from noon, so it would be 6 p.m. in the evening. Jewish time would be counting from 6 a.m. when the sun came up. In that case, it would be noon. So it's, it's either noon or it's, or it's uh, you know, 6 in the evening. Um, all we know is this, uh, Sychar was about 40 miles from Jerusalem, and back in those days, it was generally considered that uh, a group of men who were walking along these dusty roads could cover about 20 miles in a day. So this is probably day two of their walk from leaving Jerusalem, and so it's been the, it's been the end of a long, long walk. I mean, 20 miles would take a number of hours of walking in the heat, and so Jesus is weary. And again, we see the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. No king in his right mind, no king in his right mind would walk the 40 miles from Jerusalem to Sychar on the way up to Galilee. Nobody would do it. They might, they might ride a carriage. They might be carried in a litter. They might ride on horseback. But here's the God of the universe. He makes no excuses for himself. He's wearing old dusty sandals and he's going to walk this thing. And he allows himself to feel tired. He allows himself to be tired out. I and mean, this is the God, again, who created the entire universe with the word. He sits down by the well, and he's exhausted. He's exhausted. This is the God we serve. And again, oh, I know all this. I know Jesus took on flesh. We need to never get tired of it. Think about this. This is the God we approach in prayer. He allowed himself to feel tired. He didn't need to do that. Why would he do that? 
He allowed himself to sit there dusty and weary at a well and be thirsty and be exhausted and go through this long walk. Why would he do that? It's because he loves you and me so much he wanted to be able to feel with us when we come to him. And so when you go to this Jesus in prayer, yes, on the one hand, we go to him with hope because he's all-powerful. He can rescue us from anything. And at the same time, he understands us. He doesn't push us away. He says, come to me, I get you. I get you. How many of us feel exhausted in life? Often. We just feel tuckered out. And it's when we're tuckered out mentally and emotionally and physically. We feel that's when we often fall into sin. That's when we fall into temptation. And we just feel like, oh, I can't love. I can't serve. I can't keep going. When you go to Jesus about that, he's not shaking his finger at you and saying, get it together. Get filled with the Holy Spirit and just, you know, pull your bootstraps up and let's get going. That's not how he treats you. When you come to him weary, he never sinned in his weariness, and we often do. But when you come to him weary, he says, I get that. I love you. I understand that you're frail and that you're weak. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, which means that he feels with us in our frailty and weakness. He does not condemn us in our frailty and weakness. That is so important. So often our minds condemn us. We feel down because I've been so tired recently and I've fallen into this and I've fallen into that and I'm not doing this and I'm tuckered out spiritually and we feel like he condemns us and you can actually lay aside those feelings of condemnation. He feels with us in our frailty and weakness. The God of the universe, it's spectacular, who made everything, who's all-powerful, actually understands what it feels like to be tired and he loves us when we come to him exhausted and frail and weak. Verse 7 He's gentle and lowly of heart. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay? And so Jesus is exhausted. His disciples are gone. And now he does two things that are a no-no. First of all, talking to a woman. I won't even have time to get into that too, too much. But talking to a strange woman in those days, sitting at a well like this, that was just a bad thing. Women were, were, were looked down upon. But the bigger thing is he's talking to a Samaritan. And again, this is, a, this is a, uh, quite a famous story. Most of you, we just kind of know. Yeah, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along with each other. They hated each other. Jesus loved them. But you have to understand, it, this is more than just a little bit of a dislike. This was not, you know... Jews had a distaste for Samaritans and it came out of nothing. There was a real history as to why they didn't like each other and sometimes it actually helps. And I just want to take a few minutes now on this message. I want to show you a bit of the history between Jews and Samaritans because first of all, it'll help you understand the Old Testament a little better and then it'll also help you understand it brings this story to life a little bit. But a short history of Jews and Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans and why did they hate each other? Okay, and this is all part of the story of the Old Testament, Okay. And it goes back to, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 12, but it all started about 900 years before Jesus, okay? And you'll remember that the first two kings of Israel, well, there was Saul, the, first, the, the second and third kings of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel, and then there was the most famous one, the most, you know, David, and then there was David's son, Solomon, uh, who did all the, the amazing building projects and all that sort of stuff, and he was the wisest man who ever lived and all that. Now, Solomon, towards the end of his life, 
uh, became, he, he got into, into many, many wives, and that got him into all kinds of trouble. I, you know, we all could have told him that the wisest man in the world did some pretty stupid things. Um, but uh, he had a bunch of wives, too many. He got into idolatry, and at the end of his life, just a downhill slide. His son, Rehoboam, takes over, but now God is going to judge. And, and, and so God is going to rip the kingdom in two. Now, he promised that David would always have a king, on, you know, a descendant on the throne of Israel. So he can't take the throne away from Solomon's son. But he is going to discipline him. And we're going to see this discipline here. I'm going to read you the story because this, the, the whole story of Samaritans and Jews and who the Samaritans are goes back to this story. Okay? So 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, let's, I just have to, we just have to stop there for just a second because uh, Shechem, you remember in the story of the, of the woman at the well, we said that Jesus came to a well in, in Samaria, which was at this town called Sychar, okay? Sychar was at the same place. Sychar was just the New Testament name of the town that was on the place where the Old Testament town of Shechem had been. Shechem was a very important uh, city in northern Israel in the Old Testament, okay, in Samaria, all right? So the interesting thing is, the very place where the seeds of the division between Jews and Samaritans first started 900 years before, Jesus is back at that very same place 900 years and some years later, and he's sowing the seeds of bringing them together. And to me, it's no accident that he's in the exact same place. I mean, he's the sovereign God of everything. He's just weaving it all together. It's all just, I think in some ways, it's probably fun for him to weave this map together. This is where it started to break apart. And now I'm going to go right there, and I'm going to start to bring it back together. And so Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem for all of Israel to make him king. So he's succeeding now, so they're going to have a big um, celebration of the new king. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made your yoke, our yoke heavy. That's, they're talking about Solomon. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So the, the, the tribes of Israel are all committed to following Solomon. But the thing is, Solomon had done all these building projects, and so there had been a lot of labor, a lot of labor. He was conscripting la labor, high taxes, and so at the end of his life, everybody's a little bit exhausted. Okay, great, your dad Solomon built all these amazing buildings, but now we're tuckered out, and you've got to lessen the load on us. Therefore, lighten the hard service of Solomon, okay? And the king, now, unfortunately, Rehoboam takes some bad advice from his young counselors. We could do a whole message on that, okay? But the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. So he had, a, I wonder what it was like, see, these two groups of counselors. One was the old guys and one was the young guys. And, uh, but anyway, he, he forsook. He, so he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, there's these two groups, and the young men said, we just got to go hard. Your father did all these great building projects. You're going to do more. And my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Not good leadership, okay? Not how you get people to, to follow you. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have with David? So David's tribe and Solomon's tribe and Rehoboam's tribe, that was the tribe of Judah. The rest of the tribes are saying, you know what? If he's going to treat us like this, what portion do we have with David's descendants? That's your family. You can follow him. We're out of here. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. And Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So that, it was on that day, 1 Kings 12, when the nation of Israel split into two nations. Now, most of you know this, but I still answer people's questions sometimes. When you're reading through the Old Testament, a lot of people don't uh, realize, many people do, but many people don't, 
that for the rest of the Old Testament, Israel is in two parts. And this is sometimes confusing to people, but for the rest of the Old Testament, it's mostly following the nation of Israel after this point is basically the tribe of Judah and Benjamin all around Jerusalem there. But it's split into two parts. I'll just put up a map there for you. The rest of the Old Testament, Israel is two separate nations. And they have wars with each other. There's animosity. There's two separate countries. The kingdom of Israel is in the north. And, it's, and it's, you can see the top red arrow there. That's the blue country. The top red arrow is there pointing, I think, because the letters are too small. Um, but the top uh, had the capital city of Samaria. And so you can already see where Samaritans is going to come from. But the, 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 the ten tribes in the north split off. They make their own nation with a capital city of Samaria. That was their big city. And then the bottom one is the one that the Old Testament continues to follow, which is the tribe of Judah. That's David's family continues to rule there. It's the tribe of Judah and Benjamin together. And their capital city is Jerusalem. All right? And, uh, and so again, the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, capital of Judah, and the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Okay? Now, how did Samaritans come apart? Well, you can already see there's people living around Samaria. Eventually, they're going to be called Samaritans. 200 years after the, nation, the, the two uh, sections of Israel split up, uh, the Assyrian Empire came in and exiled the northern kingdom. They didn't conquer the southern kingdom. They conquered the northern kingdom and exiled them all out. Or not all of them, but many of them, all right? This is just what empires did back then, okay? So they exiled out a bunch of, of the Israelites, and then they brought out people from the surrounding nations and caused them to settle in the northern kingdom, all right? And so these two people groups mixed ethnically. So the, the northern kingdom now is no longer purely ethnically Israel. It's now an ethnic mix, okay? And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 17, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sephar, Vaim, or whatever, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now remember, to the Israelites, um, ethnic purity in the Old Testament was really important. God had told them, you Jews have to stay separate from the surrounding pagan nations. So now the people in the south, the people in the southern kingdom, start to look at the people in the northern kingdom and say, you're not pure Jews anymore, you're a mix. So you're not part of the people of God anymore, all right? And already right there, you've got the seeds of this ethnic dislike for each other. But even more than that, the people in the north, not only did they mix ethnically, so now you've got this mixture of Jewish blood and all the pagan blood from surrounding that the Assyrians brought in, they also began to mix religions, okay? And we find this next verse, and at the beginning of their dwelling there, these new immigrants that are coming into to Israel, they did not fear the Lord. So at the beginning, they didn't even bother worshiping God. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Okay, so that got their attention. I wonder what, th what that means, but just lions everywhere. And uh, people afraid to walk to work and stuff like that. So verse 26, the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of that land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, and, and I just, it's interesting to me how these people back then, they just, they just got spiritual realities. Well, lions are killing people. Clearly that God is mad. And, uh, and so he says, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests who the Assyrians had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So now what you have is, so Assyrians come to northern Israel, they exile the people out, a bunch of them, there's still a bunch of Israelites there, they bring a bunch of other ethnic groups in, they begin mixing. Now they also mix religion. 
Because the Assyrian king is like, well, the lions are killing them, so you better start to worship the God of Israel. Okay? But, next verse, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. That's the first use of the word Samaritan in the Bible. Every nation in the cities in which they live. So now what you have is these Samaritan people. They're mixed ethnically, and they've mixed religions. They've taken the true worship of God. They actually worship Yahweh, but they mixed it with all their other gods. So they didn't just serve him. They didn't just serve these. They mixed it together. And this uh, went on. This was the start of the Samaritans. And this goes on for 900 years until the time of Jesus. By the time of Jesus, you have this area of Samaria. They have their own temple, which is supposed to rival the one in Jerusalem. They, they, they accept some of the Old Testament, the first five books, but they don't accept the rest. They worship Yahweh, but they have all these other pagan things in there. It's kind of like a cult. And so you have this ethnically mixed group of people, and you've got this mixture of true religion with pagan religion, and, and the two sides really hate each other. But where the animosity really took off is these Samaritans pop up again in the book of Nehemiah is about 100 years after the Assyrians took the northern tribes into exile, the Babylonians came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And that's what the book of Daniel is about when, when all the, you know, Jerusalem gets trashed and the temple gets torn down. And now we have the Jews from, from the southern kingdom taken into exile. And, uh, and so, but after their, their exile in Babylon, the king sends them back to rebuild the temple. That's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And sometimes it'd be, sometimes it'd be great to put all this on a chart and just walk you guys through the Old Testament, help you understand the, the storyline of the Old Testament. But the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about that southern kingdom, Judah. They've been in captivity in Babylon. They get to go back and rebuild the temple. They get to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? And so Nehemiah goes back, and they're going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But when they're going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, the Samaritans feel threatened, because they had been moving into the area. They didn't want the Jews. They, they, them and the Jews hated each other, mixed religion, mixed ethnicity. There's already bad feeling. And so they oppose the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We find this in, in Nehemiah. And this is when the hard feelings really get uh, set in stone. Uh, Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that, they were, that we were building the wall, this is Nehemiah speaking, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria... What are these feeble Jews doing? So they're mocking them. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned uh, ones at that? And so the rest of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the, and the Jews are rebuilding the wall and they always have, it says, one hand on their sword and one hand is building because the rest of the time they're under threat. They're under in intimidation. There's attempted murdery, murder, murdery. There's attempted murder and treachery uh, as, these, as these Samaritans try to, to murder Nehemiah and they try to intimidate the Jews. And after this, it's just open hostility, Samaritans and Jews. So there's a long history, Samaritans and Jews, that goes back, okay? And so we fast forward now 500 years from Nehemiah, 900 years from Rehoboam. We fast forward to the time of Jesus, and you've got these two groups of people that really hate each other. And they have a list of reasons why they hate each other. They've got historical reasons. And Jesus comes here, you know, 900 years after the start, 500 years after Nehemiah, and he goes right back to the very place, Shechem, Sychar, where the whole division started, and he sits there at a well. Okay, he walks right into the heart of Samaria, right to the very place where it all started, and he's going to sit down there, and he's going to start loving on a Samaritan woman. And the thing you have to realize is this is amazing. For There's one more reason why this is really amazing now, okay? And now you can begin to understand 
uh, why the disciples are shocked that he would do this, but there's another reason they're shocked, and that's this. Um, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he only had a limited amount of time to do ministry in his body here on the earth. Okay, so we, his disciples, does he love everybody in the world? Yes, he loves us today. We're not Jews, and we love him, and he loves us. But during his three and a half years of ministry, he had a very focused time of ministry in his physical body here on the earth. When, while he was here, he only ministered, he primarily ministered to Jews. His focus was on the Jewish people. Now, sometimes Gentiles would come and take him by surprise, but for the most part, he did not minister to non-Jews. In fact, we see this in a famous story in Matthew 15. There's a Canaanite woman that comes to him for help. I'll just read it to you because a very interesting story. Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And so he answers her. Now this, to answer to us, seems callous, but it, it shows us something about his purpose. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In, in other words, I'm not going to minister to you right now because you're a Canaanite, and I have a very focused amount of time here. I'm going to minister to Jews. Now, of course, we know what happens in the rest of the story. She breaks him down. She won't let up. She says, you got to help me. Give me the crumbs from the table. And he says, you know what, daughter? Your faith is amazing. And he actually does heal her daughter. Her daughter, Because he loves her. But the, the point is, during his three and a half years of ministry, he was purposely not going to non-Jews. He had a focused amount of time. He was to the Jewish people. After he would go back to heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit on the disciples and tell them, and the, we see this in the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul and everything, he would send them to the nations because he loves all the nations. It's not that he just loves Jews, but during his time on earth, he was sent to the Jewish people, Okay. And so he never, he never went out of his way to do ministry to non-Jews, okay? Now think about this. He purposely walks through Samaria. He sits down at a well. He doesn't just minister to the Samaritan woman for 15 minutes. He stays in Samaria for two whole days to minister to them, okay? I'm going to show you this. If we jump a little bit ahead in John chapter 4, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed uh, because of his word. So the fact that Jesus would say to the Canaanite woman, you know what, I'm not going to heal your daughter right now because my focus is on the Jewish people, but he goes to Samaria, spends two days there. He's making a statement to his disciples. He's making a huge statement. See, the Jews all said to the Samaritans, you are not part of us anymore because you're mixed. You're not a Jew anymore. You're not part of our people. Jesus goes in there purposely into the heart of Samaria to the place where it all started, sits down, and then stays there two days purposely to minister to them. He's making a statement here to his disciples and to the Samaritans themselves. He's saying, you are still part of my people. He's not condoning. He's not condoning their religion. The Samaritans did have false religion. They had all kinds of false beliefs and disgusting stuff that they did. He's not condoning their history. He's not condoning the things they believe. But he is saying... You are part of my people. I only came to the lost sheep of Israel, and I'm coming to you. So he's making a massive statement here, and he even talks about the Samaritans as being a harvest. The disciples can't even believe it. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, they don't see a harvest here. 
because they don't see people. They just want to, let's get out of here. These Samaritans are nasty. And Jesus says, stop right there. These are still part of the people of Israel, and this is a harvest. And so here again, we see the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus at work, whereas everybody else who was a Jew had this look, and not just the Jews, the Samaritans had this word of the Jews. They're both at fault here. But he has no prejudice, no selfish sense of superiority. 900 years, I mean, he could have had someone yelling in his ear the entire time. But the Samaritans did this, and but the Samaritans did this, and they believe this, and they do this. He could have had people telling him all the legitimate reasons why Jews and Samaritans don't get along. But his gentle and lowly heart, he sees past all those walls of prejudice, and all he sees is people, and we love these people, and these are real people. There's no room for prejudice there. There's no room for a selfish sense of superiority. That's amazing to me. That's incredible. Again, this is the God we serve. That there are no walls with him. It's just human beings, I love you. Now, of course, this is important for another reason. We're supposed to be Christians. That's Christians. We're supposed to be like him, which means we are also not supposed to carry a selfish sense of superiority along with us or prejudice. You say, oh, I'm with you, Chris. Amen. Preach it, brother. I have no prejudice against Samaritans. <laughs> oh, good for you. Me neither. Right? Whew, we made it through. None of us has prejudice against Samaritans. Well, we don't have encounters with Samaritans. I don't even think they exist anymore. Although I should maybe Google that later. Maybe I just said something that's not true. Um, you say, what's the big deal? Well, who, I wonder who our Samaritans are today. Because we still have prejudices. I wonder what our prejudices are today. Let's talk about First Nations peoples, natives. And you say, well, I don't have, I'm not prejudiced against, I'm not prejudiced against, uh, uh, you know, First Nations people or natives. I, I'm not prejudiced against them. Good. Many are not. That's awesome. I love that. But too many still within the church, if we're going to be honest, too many still are. And I know. Because you still hear among Christians jokes and attitudes and comments. You say, oh, but Chris, you haven't been up north. You haven't gone on the reserves. If you, if you did a little bit of construction and you worked up there, you would see what it's like. I'm not saying we deny problems. I mean, someone could have yelled in Jesus' ear the whole time, like I said before, the Samaritans did this and this and this and this. He's not, it's not a denial of actual problems or, 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 or issues that are there. But he looks past all of that and he sees an individual and this is a person just like you are a person. And this is a harvest, just like you are a harvest. These are people, a gentle and lowly heart. The opposite of a gentle and lowly heart is I build up walls and I'm better than. I have judgmentalism towards, I have prejudice. And too many, in too many circles still, we use the excuse of, hey, there's issues here and there, but we take that and then we turn that into, this is my excuse to look down on people, to disrespect a people, to talk in certain ways about a people, and actually, it has no room in the church. I can't imagine Jesus standing beside me and making a comment about First Nations people that is derogatory. He will not be happy because he has a gentle and lowly heart and so are we to have a gentle and lowly heart. But you know, it's not just First Nations people. I wonder who are some of the, you know, by the way, actually speaking of this, I was shocked. I have a good friend in this church who is Hispanic and, uh, and just love him. And he has a job in, in a service area. He has to go into people's uh, homes and stuff and fix things and, and various things. But anyway, uh, I remember him telling me for the first time, probably a couple of years ago, and at first I hardly believed, well, are you serious? That still goes on today? But he'll go to people's homes and they'll take one look at his skin color and he looks native 
and they'll say, you're not coming in here. Now, of course, I'm hoping that most of those people are not Christians. That's what I'm just assuming and I'm hoping. But they just, that's just, I mean, if, if you are a believer in Jesus, that is not us. Jesus sat down at a well with the Samaritans, and then he spent two days there. Cover me with Samaritans. I want, to love a bunch, I want to love on a bunch of Samaritans today. This is a harvest. Guys, can't you see the harvest? Let's bring it in. Okay, there's no room for prejudice, but, you know, it's not just First Nations people. You, I, you pick up vibes. You pick up vibes. You're around here long enough. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I've noticed a number of times. But you get this vibe. You know, immigrant families or Mennonite families, strong low German accent. They come from down south or wherever they come from. You know, Mexico or Bolivia or whatever. And they don't dress maybe totally the same. They have big families. They do this, they do that. Again, many of you, no problem. But too many Christians, we look down on them. It's true. You can see it in the eyes. You can see it in the tone of voice. You can see it in the way we treat people. They're different than us. They're not as smart as us. They're not this. They don't dress like us. Jesus, the creator of the universe, has a gentle and lowly heart. There's no excuse for us to have anything less than the same. And he doesn't, he doesn't build. He, if anybody could look down on people with a sense of superiority, he could. Gentle and lowly heart. He comes right down and says, we're right on the same level here. I'm sitting at the well with you. We can move on, you know, socially awkward people, handicapped people, the ones we kind of try and avoid. Oh, don't talk to them. Don't sit with them at the prayer summit. Don't invite them into your cell. Don't have them over. I mean, do we only ever mingle with people who are the same as us, at the same level as us? Do we ever mingle with people who are a little poorer, who don't have it all together, who maybe have disabilities of various kinds. Our God has a gentle and lowly heart, and all people on this earth have room with him. And as a church, we've got to mirror that. Amen? We've got to mirror that. I want to mirror that. I want to get better at this. And so he meets her on the level of her needs and understanding. If we, if we go back to verse 10 in chapter 4 there, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, I just love the gentle and lowly heart. So he sits down with this person who's a woman and who's a Samaritan would be utterly despised and looked down on by his own disciples, never mind the rest of everybody else. And again, I just wonder, who are the people that we despise and look down to? Would we sit down at the well with them and take two days? He's not ashamed to be seen with her. It's not like he hides it. When the disciples come back, it's not like, he, oh, <laughs> come and look at me with this woman. Here I am. If you knew, but now he talks to her, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I just love, she's down to earth. Well, what are you talking about? Did you have a different well? You have a different bucket, right? I love this, the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But again, this is the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. There's no prejudice. He allows himself to feel weary. He's gentle with John the Baptist. You know, all of this stuff is going on. And now here's this woman and totally does not get spiritual things. Does he make her come up to his level or does he go down to her level? <sighs> when we go to prayer, how often do we go to prayer condemned? And we just think like, I think many of us subconsciously have this thing 
Like, you know, I got to, you know, I got to fast. I got to, you know, pray. I got to do a whole bunch of really amazing things. And then I got to talk to Jesus about the nations. Well, at some point he might, you know, as you walk with him, he might give you a heart for the nations. You can pray for them. But we have this feeling that's all he cares about. And we have this feeling like the everyday stuff of life. Jesus, that's the unspiritual stuff. The stuff that consumes our days, work and people we work with and the stuff we struggle with and the things we think about and our hobbies, that doesn't matter to Jesus. So we only, when we come to Jesus, we only talk about it to him about spiritual things because we have this feeling like we have to come up to his level to talk to him. But what I love about the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus, and this story should encourage us so much, is he comes down to her level. She doesn't have to go away to a monastery and fast and pray to meet Jesus. It's an everyday thing. Every day she goes and gets water, and it's in an everyday thing that she meets Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't it the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever? If this woman can meet Jesus at her everyday chore place, that means you and I, that's the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. He's not way up in heaven saying, you got to come up to me. He is walking with us every day and he says, you can meet me in the everyday things of your life too. It all matters to him. And you can meet him in that, the mundane, everyday stuff of life. The mundane, everyday stuff of life. This has profound implications. It means Jesus doesn't just meet you when you're in your devotions. We've got to have devotions. There's not even a question. I mean, if you're not in the Word, we need... We need to feed on this because God's word is eternal. We need, Jesus told the devil, man does not live on bread alone, but he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Like we need the word of God. We need disciplined times of prayer because if we don't have disciplined times in the word and disciplined times of prayer, then we won't be conscious of him throughout the day. So we do need the disciplined time. But here's my point. Many of us have this idea, the only time I can talk to Jesus is when I'm in my devotions. But the amazing thing is, Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart. It's not just, oh, finally you're having your devotions. Now, goodbye, and I'll see you tomorrow when you get spiritual again. This woman meets Jesus at the well. The rest of your day, you can bring Jesus into the things you're doing, and you can meet him there. And in fact, when we begin to live that way, that's when everything comes undone, and we start to experience heaven on our insides, which is what Jesus says next. So he's still coming down to her level. He says to her, so she wants to talk about water. He says, okay, let's talk about water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, in the hands of Jesus, the mundane, if you will bring, if you and I will bring Jesus the mundane things of our life, going for a bucket of water. If we meet Jesus in the mundane things of life, he will give us living water. Now, a lot of Christians read this passage, and isn't this true? This is the sad thing. Living water. I know all that. Oh, yeah, living water. We all get living water. You know, the moment I asked Jesus in my heart 35 years ago, I got the living water. And why are you so grumpy today? Yeah, I got the living water there 17 years ago. I asked Jesus in my heart. And I'm just nasty to people at work. Lots of prejudice. Full of anxiety and fear, but thank God for the living water. <laughs> See, we have this assumption. Like we read, we've read this story so many times. 
and we fill in the blanks. I got the living water when I asked Jesus into my heart. Well, yes. Yeah, it, it, there, there is an element that that's true because when you ask Jesus into your heart, you got the Holy Spirit. Amen. But many Christians are living abominably unhappy, miserable lives. That's not living water. That's not living water. He's not promising her, you get the Holy Spirit, and now you can continue to be miserable. He's talking about something real, that we can have this life that bubbles up in us of joy and purpose and peace and satisfaction and contentment, all that rejoicing in the Lord that wells up from deep within. That's living water. But how do we get the living water? It's not just I prayed once in my life to ask Jesus into my heart. The living water comes when we do what this woman did and we become people who abide in Jesus. John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you. Day by day, we bring him into the mundane, everyday things of our lives. And when we do that, things that otherwise are boring and sad and depressing come to life. A couple of quick examples and we're done. Family gatherings. For many people, these are not exciting events. For many people, these are not events where we meet Jesus. They're just part of the mundane rhythm of life. I remember one family gathering, being somewhere, and that's yeah, just one of those, it's an extended gathering, and it is what it is. And we'll go home soon, and that will be better, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jesus opens up this doorway, and I, unfortunately, I hadn't even prayed about it, really, that day, but I'd prayed about it before, but Jesus just opened up a, a doorway. There was a doorway, and for once in my life, you know, sometimes we miss, sometimes we don't, um, or sometimes we do, and whatever, I'm getting all mixed up here, but anyway... Um, sometimes you don't go through and, and sometimes you do. And this time I went through and there was a doorway open and to talk about God. And it was just, you know, I was able to obey and just sense the prompting of the Spirit and bring Jesus into it for 15, 20 minutes. It wasn't anything big. And then what? Made the entire family gathering. I get in the van afterwards with it on. I'm like, this was the best family gathering ever. It was awesome. I couldn't stop talking about it. What? Why was it so amazing? I mean, there was hours of whatever and then there was 15 minutes of blah. I brought Jesus into a mundane, everyday thing. Jesus also says in John chapter 4, I have food that the disciples said, hey, have you eaten yet? Because they went to get him food. And he says, I'm actually not hungry anymore. What are you talking about? We just went and got food from a Samaritan grocery store. Come on. <laughs> and he says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're going, he snuck it in his robe somewhere. <laughs> and he, he says to them, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. You want to be satisfied in life? It's so much more than having your devotions once a day. It's having your devotions every day so that you can be more aware of Jesus, so you can bring him into the mundane, everyday things of your life. And when you bring him in, there's satisfaction and joy and purpose. It's like, whoa, that wasn't just a family gathering. That was a Jesus family gathering. You know, I think of praying uh, for my one daughter and just saying, Lord, I, I want to talk to her more about God, but not in an overbearing way. Like, I just, more excuses to talk about you. And it was sort of a prayer that was going on. And, and then one day, Jesus gave me this idea. I wasn't even praying about it that day. He just gives me this idea of a book to read with her that's all about, you know, God and miracles and stuff. And, like that. and as the moment he did, it was like, oh, I was so excited. Like, what a great idea, Jesus. Thank you. Gave us something to do before bedtime. Suddenly, bedtimes were exciting. Reading this thing and having discussions about God and miracles. It was amazing. Bedtime is a mundane, everyday thing. But when Jesus is in it, Living water, it's life, it's excitement. 
I mean, I, decisions that you have to make about, are we going to trade in our vehicle and get a new one this year? Are we going to move to a new house? All of these things are excuses to meet Jesus there. What are you saying, Jesus? How can this be about you? He's gentle and lowly of heart. When your life becomes about meeting Jesus in everything every day, that's when you have living water in your life. And the amazing thing is we think he's so distant and doesn't care about that stuff, but he's gentle and lowly of heart. He cares about it all. He wants to be in your life. And he will meet you in those things. You don't have to come up to his level. He will come down and meet you in the things you care about and you're doing. And that is an amazing God we serve. So two things for the weekly challenge. Number one, check your life this week for prejudice. Some of you might think, I, just, I don't have prejudice. Then you won't mind just doing a little listening prayer. Just, I don't have any prejudice. Well, just ask. It's no problem. And maybe Jesus will say, way to go, you have no prejudice. And maybe Jesus will say, Psh, you have a bit of prejudice. Well, you confess it. See if he says anything to you about it. Begin to change, all right? Second thing, bring Jesus into the everyday stuff of your life. Ask Jesus to reveal to you three areas of everyday life, like going to the well for a bucket of water. Everyday life. Ask him for three areas of your everyday life that you have not maybe even thought to ever bring him into. Do listening prayer in each of those areas and ask him to show you how you can serve him and walk with him in those areas. I think that's a fun little assignment. You're going to be in this experience of living water in those things. So let's pray, and then we'll sing a song. Jesus, I thank you, all-powerful God of the universe, and yet gentle and lowly of heart. Amazing. Amazing. We worship you, and we love you. Thank you that you care about the everyday little things of our lives. Thank you that we can meet you. Thank you that we don't just meet you in our devotions. We can meet you all day long. We can submit to you in everything we do. And when we do that, we experience that joy springing up in our hearts of living water. I pray that you would be with each person here this morning, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that this week we would learn to abide in you day by day. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.